Pastor Jim. I'm not going to lie, you've never looked better than you do right now in this moment. Uh, this is a, an incredible day for us, and honestly, we're kind of just standing in awe a little bit of it as well and just taking it all in. 13 years of being at the ballet, um, ending today. Uh, four of those 13 years have been pursuit of this facility, and many of you guys know the story, but so many high highs and low lows. And I just want to say thank you to all of Man, our team, our staff, our volunteers, serve team members, you, all the sacrifices you've made, time, finances to get us to this point. It's a big day. It's worthy of celebrating, isn't it? Amen. Amen. Over the next several weeks, what we're going to do uh, is begin to make this house our home, right? How many know when you first move into an apartment or a house or something like that, it doesn't immediately feel like home, does it? Because everything's new. Like I was just thinking back there, which side am I going to come out on this? I've never done this before, you know? <laughs> Uh, what am I going to do? So uh, after a while, uh, like I said, we still have some construction left. You may walk in some of the bathrooms that are not completely finished or some things that we're still doing. We're going to begin to make this house our home, and it's going to feel more like home uh, the longer that we go. And so uh, we're excited about uh, all of that in the weeks to come. Uh, you've already probably know this, but uh, we knew that when we started meeting here this first Sunday, we wouldn't have everything in line and order. And so that's why we put our grand opening on March 26th. Right? So we have several weeks to kind of figure things out a little bit before we uh, officially kind of open to the public, even though I'm sure we'll have people come before then. And then uh, two weeks after that is Easter. So there's two big invitation Sundays coming up where we, uh, by that time, we'll have a sign on the front of the building and everything, right? And so we will be uh, full go by then. Let me do say this to you. Uh, I'm very excited about this season of Lent. Lent to me is the most transformational uh, time of the Christian calendar. It's a time of reflection and repentance. It's a time of reordering in our lives. It can also be a painful time uh, because we are, are fasting. We're giving up things we love to reorder our desires back to God. And I would just say to you, don't miss this season of Lent. Of all the other things going on, man, we want to lean into this time and you just begin to discern where you feel like the Holy Spirit is, is leading you to say, you know what, maybe there's some things out of alignment. There's some things that I want to reorder in you as you give this up to develop a deeper hunger and a passion for God. Amen? I can list those things in my life that the Holy Spirit is already speaking about. And we want you to go on that journey with us. This morning, we're going to kick off our Lent series with what I believe is one of the most powerful but difficult passages in the entire Bible. And over the next several weeks, we're going to kind of be in-depth look at Jesus in the garden and this concept of surrender. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. One of the most beautiful but powerful and painful passages just hours before his arrest and death. If you've got your Bibles and you're following along, Luke chapter 22 says this, and it says, and he came out and went, as was his custom, I want you to look at that, not the first time Jesus had done this, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. We're going to take some time talking about the nevertheless passage, but I want to look real quickly 
at verse 44, and it says this, and being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly. This is the Greek word agonia, which we translate to agony or anguish and intense anxiety, emotional sorrow. It would have depicted images not just of anguish, but in that time it would, it would have been depicted of, of almost like an athlete who's going into preparing himself to enter into the arena or the stadium. If any of you ever, if you watch sports, if you've been a part of playing sports, how many know you don't just show up and compete at the highest level? You don't just show up and walk in and, and play at the highest level. There's a lot that goes in beforehand, isn't there? The conditioning, the nutrition, the working out, the stretching, the getting ready, the warm-up, all of the things. I, I grew up my whole life, I played every sport imaginable. Uh, grew up, baseball was my life as a kid, and then I developed a love for football. I still love football today. I had a problem in football. When I would hit somebody, I would go backwards, but they wouldn't. And so I played one year, and my parents were like, please stop. You have so many bruises, it's just not for you, right? Sometimes you just gotta own it, and it wasn't for me. And so I played basketball, and I was pretty good, but not great, and I remember my freshman year of, of high school, I had a buddy, and he was like, hey, we need, a, we need more kids on the tennis team, plus you get out of school a lot to go to these tournaments, and I'm like, I'm in. And I had played around with tennis some, and so I start playing a little my freshman year, and the coach is like, I think you actually have a lot of potential if you wanted to dedicate yourself to the game, and so I'm like, okay, I don't actually have to be the most athletic in tennis to win, which helps me, right? And so I started playing a lot and getting better. And then uh, by the time my, my junior year, we were the second, me and my partner were the second, uh, we were ranked number two in doubles in the state of Oklahoma. And we started to get some notoriety and some schools became to look and, and maybe you want to play college tennis. And so to do that, I had to begin to go and travel around the Midwest playing on this USDA circuit because that's the only way that you get your ranking higher and higher if you want people to recognize you. In Oklahoma, you're playing three matches sometimes in July or August. If you've ever been on a tennis court in, in July, right? If it says 102 outside, it's 138 on the court. I would have to hydrate for like days in advance. I would lose pounds of fluid playing tennis. But I discovered something pretty early on in tennis that was different than other sports that I played, is that tennis is a mental game more than anything. It's mental. Like, you're going to hit so many bad shots, you're going to hit good shots. It was the guys that could, like, get past the mental game, get over the bad shots, and continue to compete that would win. And I would realize that I would be able to beat guys who were better than me because they would hit a bad shot and they'd be, like, you know, yelling at the line judge and throwing their racket on the ground. And if the guy threw the racket on the ground, I was like, he's done. I got him. Like, this match is over. Because he's already mentally somewhere else, Right? The mental game that obviously a lot of times in these tennis matches, the, the match was won before it ever started because you had to prepare yourself mentally. In the first century, if you heard this word agonia, it had a double meaning. Jesus was preparing himself, readying himself for battle, for the competition. It would have been a, like a gladiator or someone, uh, an athlete going into the arena. This is what Gethsemane was for Jesus. It was the preparation for what was about to come in Jesus' life. Mary Jo Letty says it like this, in order to live in real courage, we must die before we die. In order to live in courage, there's got to be a death before a death, doesn't there? Ronald Rollhauser says this, he says, we cannot simply walk from self-pampering to self-sacrifice. From living in fear to acting in courage, and from cringing before the unknown to taking a leap of faith without first, like Jesus in Gethsemane, readying ourselves through a certain agonia, 
without undergoing a painful sweat that comes from facing what will be asked of us is if we continue to live the truth. We don't just jump from courage. You don't just jump from comfort to courage and all these things. No, you have to go through a process of death and dying. And can I just say, we've been in a series called Scandalous Grace where we told some really great stories if you were there for that. This is not going to be that. Lent is difficult. You can't preach a message of the cross without it being a difficult message because how many know the cross is an instrument of death? The cross bids us come and die. The cross demands all that we are. See, deep down inside you and I, there's this deep instinct for comfort and self-preservation and safety. So how was Jesus able to go to the cross? Because Jesus went through the garden. Jesus was able to get to the cross because he first went through the garden. Jesus was simultaneously living as a dead man and living in the future resurrection. Did you think about that? He was a living dead man because he wasn't living for what was right in front of him or before him or the comforts of this world. He was living for something better. He knew about the coming resurrection. How do we know that he was living dead? Look at this passage in John chapter 19, verse 9. This is when uh, this is Pilate takes Jesus into his headquarters. He entered into his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Think about that for a second. You ever been falsely accused of anything? What's your response? To as quickly justify yourself as possible, right? I only have one sibling. I have an older sister. Uh, She's about three and a half, four years older than me. Uh, We could not be more different. I grew up and I was very reserved. I was a people pleaser. I was quiet. I was laid back. I didn't like to argue. She loves to argue. She's four years older than me. She loves a good argument. She, all the time, she's ready to go. And so growing up, she would literally just, I mean, she would, she would just dominate me. Whatever I, I need to do. In fact, this is a true story. She would make me sit down in her room and three or four years old, and, if, and she would be the teacher and I would be the student, and if I got up, she would smack me with a ruler. <laughs> I promise this is a true story. I walked into kindergarten, and after the first week, the kindergarten teacher met with my mom and said, he's so more advanced than all the kids in the room, and it was because of my sister. I'd had two years of preschool. I knew all of my numbers and letters before I got there because that's just how she rolls. And I'll never forget this one time and I'm starting to get a little bit older and I'm starting to push back a little bit from her. I'm like, you're not just gonna dominate me every second. And so I'm like, okay, it's time to, it's time to become a man, right? And I'm like, eight, probably nine. And I remember we get in a fight and she goes to my mom and she makes it sound like it's my fault, but it really wasn't my fault. It was never my fault. And I remember my mom gets upset and she's like, I'm done, I'm had it. And so she's going to give me a whooping. And so I remember I go into my room and my mom was never very good at that. She was way too soft anyway. So she's like, she's going to put me, she takes me into her bedroom and my sister is standing in the doorway looking at me and she gives me this little smile like, I got you. (laughs) I get triggered today thinking about it. (laughs) Nicole, if you're watching, I love you, but. And I was like, nuh-uh. Like within me, like, mom, you've got to believe me. I didn't do this. 
You know it was Nicole. You know she's the one who did it. How is Jesus being able to be in this situation? If you were the son of God, if you were blameless and faultless, how would you not in that moment look at Pilate and say, you've got it all wrong? And Jesus says nothing. How many know that dead men don't need to justify themselves? Dead men don't care what other people think about them. Jesus was walking and living already dead because he had gone through the agonia of the garden. Like Jesus in the garden, you and I were called to die before we die. And if we die like Jesus in the garden, then we won't live in the paralyzing fear of what may happen to us or what could be taken from us or if our plans or our future don't work out perfectly because guess what, we're already dead, aren't we? We're already dead. This is the paradox of the kingdom of God that's so difficult, it just doesn't make sense. This is why when Jesus says, hey, you wanna go up, then go down, and people are like, nope, I don't think it works that way. And he says, it does in my kingdom. In my reality, this is actually how it works. When you choose comfort and self-preservation, you think you're moving yourself towards life, but often you're not. You're moving yourself away from life because the greatest things you're gonna do in your life will require sacrifice, are not gonna be about you, but what you do for others. This is the truth of the kingdom of God. And the road to surrender or agonia, let me tell you, it's not easy and it doesn't come natural. This is why we, when we started this passage of Gethsemane, it's like, oh, Jesus is here again in this place of prayer. And he's wrestling and struggling. Jesus only got to this place because he had a prayer life with the Father. How many know you don't walk down a road of struggling or sacrifice if you're not praying? It just doesn't work. Now you're gonna go your own way. Now he walks through with struggle and repentance and self-reflection. This is why we come to the table every week and we lay our lives before the gospel and we say, Jesus, if there's anything that's not of you, rip it from me and I give it to you. Take the idols from my life. This is why we allow the deep inward work of the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about this. In the garden, Jesus chose to walk a road that he didn't want to walk. In the garden, Jesus chose to walk a road he didn't want to walk. I would rather do anything but walk the road that is in front of me. Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but your will be done. It says Jesus sweat drops of blood. I remember being even in graduate school and people are trying to figure out like medically how you can do this. And I'm just like, I don't think that's what the gospel writer is trying to, trying to do. It wasn't literal like he's physically, this is the, the blood of emotional crucifixion. The blood of emotional, emotional crucifixion, the price of being faithful despite the struggle. Have you ever done what is right? Like you maintained your moral integrity and it only served to ostracize you and make you uh, feel lonely and set apart? Emotional crucifixion. Have you ever remained faithful when you didn't feel like it and everything within you wanted to leave, leave or choose something else or get out, but you stuck it out anyway? Have you ever renounced your fleshly desires, literally grabbed yourself by the face, pointed yourself in the direction that you knew you needed to go, and you say, you're going to go there regardless of how you feel? You ever done that? That's what Jesus did in the garden. Have you ever willingly chosen the path of suffering and sacrifice because of obedience? This is what it means to die to yourself. The problem is this. 
Many times we're walking, we want to live this life in the kingdom of God, and we're walking out our life, and sometimes the kingdom of God and the world, our culture, are walking parallel to each other. And how many know it works out really well for us when the culture and the kingdom of God are walking side by side? It's easy. Because the world is simply uh, saying, man, what you value is the way, right? But our culture has also believed a lie that has infiltrated every part of our world, our marketing, our products, our entertainment, our worldview, our ideology. And the lie runs so deep at times that even followers of Jesus get confused because you're being discipled by the world and the culture. And so when the kingdom of God asks you to do something different than what you've been discipled in the world, you're like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And there's times where we as followers of Jesus, the only thing to do is to swim upstream. Our culture says this, follow your heart. Follow your desires. Follow your inclinations, your longings, your preferences. Nothing is greater than what you believe and what's in you. How many know desires are not altogether a bad thing? Desires get a bad rap. Some desires are God-given, aren't they? But how many know the enemy also takes our desires and disorders them? So sometimes our disordered desires actually lead us away from God. Oh, yeah, we want it, but it's not going to lead us closer to the heart of God. It's going to lead us farther away from him. You ever been there? I have. And the kingdom of God, conversely, says this. He says, not, it's not about you. It's not self-actualization. It's not finding what's deep down inside of you. It's choosing the way of the cross. It's submission. You lost me on that one, Pastor. You talk about a word nobody wants to, to say anymore. It's about submitting and surrendering our desires before him, choosing the way of death. See, we have to remind ourselves that Jesus didn't get a fairy tale life, did he? He got a fairy tale ending. We're not guaranteed a fairy tale life, the American dream. And if that, the death that needs to happen today in you, let that death happen. But if we remain faithful in him, we get the fairy tale ending of resurrection and life to the fullest. Sometimes love and fidelity demand that like Jesus in anguish and tears, we say to God, as much as I desperately want this, I know I can't have it. Think about it. As much as I want this thing and desire it, it's not in your will. Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but yours be done. See, this is the ultimate test of discipleship. Can we pray that prayer? Let me ask you this morning, what, what is your nevertheless? Even if I have to walk through brokenness in this marriage, nevertheless. Even if I have to remain single, nevertheless. What if my dream and five-year plan doesn't come to pass, God? Nevertheless. Even if I have to face family obligations and things that I don't want to step into, like an aging parent or a struggling child or taking care of someone, nevertheless. What if me or my spouse struggles through an illness through much of our life, nevertheless? What if I have to wrestle through my mental health and anxiety and depression and this darkness and, and, and maybe God takes it away and maybe he does it, but nevertheless? Nevertheless. What if my yes of obedience takes me through the valley of the shadow of death because I said yes to following Jesus? Nevertheless, 
What if I never hear an audible voice, see an overt miracle? What if all my doubts are not reconciled? What if I have to walk through pain? What if somebody who says they love God hurts me deeply? Nevertheless, let me tell you the power of this Lent journey that you and I are going on. Jesus tells us the secret or the mystery to all of life is the way of the cross. Over and over again, all throughout the Gospels, this is the secret Jesus talks about. This is the narrow gate. The thing that Jesus talks about, it's not that it's hard to understand, it's that it's hard to accept. Jesus says a lot of people are gonna hear it, but fewer people are actually gonna walk through it. This is the mystery, the secret. This is it. You want to unlock the, the power of the kingdom of God in your life, then die. It's death. It's every day waking up and saying, I am dying to myself, my ways, my desires, what I want. God, I am living as a dead man and woman, ready to walk in your will. It's not if I'm going to be obedient. The answer is yes. Now tell me the question. It's positioning ourselves before we get into the battle. Don't you love that Jesus didn't walk up to the cross and be like, okay, am I gonna take this? Am I gonna carry this cross? Am I gonna go and am I gonna do this? No, in Gethsemane, he had already laid it down, hadn't he? And he was all alone, knowing what his death was going to bring. If we wanna experience the fullness of life in the kingdom of God at its deepest and most flourishing, then we must learn the art of daily dying daily, every day waking up and making it a part of your prayer. God, today I carry my cross. I reorder my desires and my heart to you and your ways, not my ways. I don't live according to cultural principles, what other people think, what, what somebody tells me, what the marketing schemes. I live for you. Here is my life. Will we follow Jesus' example in the garden? And we're gonna spend the next several weeks of this Lent journey, journeying with Jesus to the cross in the garden, examining our own hearts, because that's what we do in Lent. We repent. We're gonna examine our hearts. Is there anything in me that today I need to lay before you? Jesus, I've, I've claimed to follow you, but to be honest with you, and I have been living my own way for a long time. You're gonna walk through Gethsemane, I'm telling you. Some of you right now, you're like, I'm there, pastor. You're gonna walk through Gethsemane. How are you gonna be on the other side of your Gethsemane? Let me ask you that. If you put that last slide up here, guys. How are you gonna be? Will you be gracious or will you be bitter? Will you be gracious or bitter? Will you be forgiving like Jesus was or will you be vengeful? No, someone's got to pay, right? Will you be loving or hate-filled? Man, so many people have an us versus them mentality. 
always drawing battle lines. Every, everything's us versus them. Man, what a horrible way to live your life. Will you be trusting or paranoid? If you've been in this room and you've been hurt, betrayed, that's a hard one. Will you be cynical or hopeful? Man, there's nothing as sad to me as a cynical heart that no longer can see the beauty and the good in life. How will we respond to Gethsemane? What will we do when we walk through it? When Jesus faced his Gethsemane, Jesus took his life and love and made them a free gift for us. He could have made it about him and he made it about us. He looked at the very accusers and the people that were gonna put him on the cross, the savior of the world, the son of God, and he loved them and forgave them. Father, nevertheless, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done in me and through me. If you would this morning, stand to your feet with me across this room. just going to prepare our hearts right now, right where you're at. Would you just, right where you're at, would you begin to prepare your heart as we're about to come to the table and take the body and the blood of Jesus? Just right where you're at, begin to prepare yourself. liturgy a new rhythm of our church is going to be say this table liturgy together every week just to prepare our hearts let me tell you sometimes you come to the table hopeful and joyous and sometimes you come limping and struggling and Jesus is here to meet us in both of those situations this is going to be on the screen let's say these words together for the weary the table is our rest For the burdened, the table is God's embrace. For the sick, the table is heaven touching earth. For the doubting and confused, the table is God's mystery revealed. For the bitter and hurting, the table is God taking our pain. For the anxious and worried, the table is our immovable hope. For the divided and disconnected, the table is where we become one. For the unbeliever, the table is an invitation to take Christ. At the table, we declare, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. I think it's significant that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took this bread. And this is representative of everybody that's in this room. So what I love about this is he took this bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it. What this represents in this room is that all of us are different. We come from different backgrounds. You voted different, you think different, but we're one body. The table is the place where no matter how different we are, we're here because of Jesus and because of Christ. And he took that bread and he broke it. It says on the night he was betrayed, 
And he took the bread and he gave it. He said, man, this is my body broken for you. I'm going to be ripped apart. So ultimately, again, we could be put back together. And Jesus would also take the cup. His shed blood poured out the forg- for the forgiveness of our sins. That one day when we stand before our Father, he will not see our sin, but he will see the blood of Jesus on our lives. Amen. Amen. If you're in the room and you're on our communion team, if you would go ahead and begin to make your way up to the front and take your elements. In just a few minutes, many of you don't remember this, but years ago before we had a global pandemic, we used to always get out of our seats and come forward and take communion. In just a few minutes, you're going to be invited to leave your seat. You're going to leave from the right of each of your section that you're in. You're going to go to the front. You're going to be handed a piece of bread. You can take that bread and dip it in the juice. You can take communion right there. You can go back to your seat. You're going to get out the right side, and you're going to go back up into your section on the other side. If you would, just bow your heads right where you're at. And as we just begin to prepare ourselves. Father, we thank you for this moment. God, we thank you that we're one body in this room, broken and given to each other and to the world. God, that what unites us truly is greater than what divides us. God, we are not first and foremost people of politics, people of the world, people of socioeconomic status, of color, of race, of gender. God, we are people that have been rescued by the blood of Jesus. And as we as one body step out of our seats in just a minute, we declare that to the world, that we are Jesus people. And right now, God, we surrender in our hearts whatever whatever you're asking for. We ask that the Holy Spirit would just shine the spotlight of the Holy Spirit on our hearts to reveal, to reveal what is, what needs to be given to you. God, I pray for our church as we go through this season of Lent God, as we journey with the cross to you, we we don't go around the Lent journey. We don't go around the cross because it's difficult, Father. We walk to the cross with you in all of the pain and agony and the difficulty because, God, we want to be formed into the image of Jesus. Make us like you, Father. As we come and take the body, as we come and take the blood, Father, would you do something in our hearts and lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As you feel comfortable doing so, you're welcome to step out of your section to the right and come and partake.